Well, as I look out over the congregation this morning, I, of course, see many very familiar faces. We've been meeting together as a body of followers of Jesus Christ for a long time now together, and, and I'm very grateful for your fellowship. And um, I said we've been meeting together as followers of Jesus Christ, and I think it's a wonderful thing that you're followers of Jesus Christ. And I think the world would be a better place if there were more followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, I think the world would be a wonderful place if everyone was a follower of Jesus Christ. But not everyone in the world shares that opinion with me. In fact, there are many people in the world that think the world would be a better place if no one was a follower of Jesus Christ. And um, I thought of a few examples. Uh, One of them is uh, Richard Dawkins. He's the author, among other books, of The God Delusion. And in a 1996 speech to the American Humanist Association, he said it is fashionable to wax apocalyptic about the threat to humanity posed by the AIDS virus, mad cow disease, and many others. But I think a case can be made that faith is one of the world's great evils, comparable to the smallpox virus, but harder to eradicate. And then uh, we can think of Kim Jong-un, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, I should have checked that out, Uh, the uh, leader of North Korea. And um, in a 2014 report by the U.S. State Department about North Korea, it says that ownership of Bibles or other religious materials is reportedly illegal, and punishable by imprisonment and severe punishment, including, in some cases, execution. And, of course, we can think of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. He's the leader of ISIS. He isn't too fond of Christians either. Uh, His efforts to wipe out Christians in the areas that are controlled by ISIS have been so extensive that the European Union in February 3 of 2016 officially recognized it as genocide. And so um, there are people in the world who really think that Christians are a problem and they would rather uh, get rid of that problem. And this is really nothing new. Already in the early days of the church, there were people who were convinced that Christianity was a problem and they were doing their best to stamp out Christianity even as it was beginning. And uh, the passage of scripture we're looking at today tells about an incident in the life of a person who was trying to stamp out Christianity. Uh, The passage is Acts chapter nine, and uh, in Acts chapter nine, we're going to be looking at verses one to 31. And so please open to that chapter in your Bibles. Acts chapter nine, verses one to 31. Now at this point, uh, it'd be very common for us to uh, stand and read the scripture together, but today I'd like to do something a little bit different. I have a uh, dramatized video of this particular passage of scripture. I'd like you to follow along in your Bibles while we watch that video together. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. 
as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul. Saul. Why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord. He answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered. I've heard many reports of all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. <laughs> he got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard it were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? 
Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lured him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers living in the fear of the Lord. Well, as we take a look at this passage this morning, I'd like to do two things. I'd like to zoom in very, very, very close and look at just one word in one verse, and then I'd like to zoom out very, very far and I'd like to look at this passage in the light of the book of Acts as a whole and think about why this particular passage is included in the book of Acts. And so as we zoom in very, very close, we can start out by looking at verse one. It says, then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And the one word in particular that I want to focus on in verse 1 is the word breathing. What does verse 1 mean when it says that Saul is breathing threats and murders against the disciples? And I'd like to suggest to you that in this verse, the word breathing is being used as a synonym for speaking. Paul is speaking threats and murder against the disciples. Paul is saying, I'm going to kill the disciples. Paul is saying, let's kill the disciples. And so Saul is speaking, and that's what it means. And the reason that I'm focusing on that particular word is every once in a while, a passage of scripture will help us to understand another passage of scripture much more clearly. And in this particular case, Acts 9.1, helps us to understand 2 Timothy 3.16. And so if you keep your finger in Acts 9.1 and turn over to 2 Timothy 3.16. 
you'll see that 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And if you have the New King James Version or a similar translation like I happen to be using today, you might be thinking, well, what on earth does Acts 9.1 have to do with 2 Timothy 3.16? But if you happen to be reading from the English Standard Version or another translation that's very similar to it, you will have read... um, All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So in Acts 9-1, we have Saul breathing out threats and murder against the disciples. In 2 Timothy 3-16, you have all scripture being breathed out by God. And so uh, in uh, my translation where it says all scripture is inspired by God, Uh, The Greek word there is literally breathed out by God. And that's what it means when it's inspired by God. The scripture is breathed out by God. You see, there's many people who will read 2 Timothy 3.16 and see all scriptures inspired by God, and they'll get an idea that, uh, you know, God is kind of, uh, you know, having an influence on the writers of scripture and and they're doing their best to capture what he's trying to tell them with greater or less success. You know, sometimes they'll kind of be close. They'll get some good things in there and sometimes, you know, they'll be a little confused and it won't be so good. And so as they approach the scripture, then they're trying to sort out the things that God might have kind of given those writers from the things that the writers had that were, were their own ideas. And so they're kind of approaching scripture kind of like a buffet. You know, you go to the, say, a seafood buffet and you say, oh, I I like shrimp, I'm gonna take some of that, but I'm not so big on pickled herring or sardines, I'm gonna leave them. And you kind of pick and choose, take the things you like and leave the things you don't like. But uh, when 2 Timothy 3.16 is saying all scripture is inspired, it's saying all scripture is breathed out by God just like Saul was breathing out threats and slaughter against the Christians. Saul was speaking threats and slaughter against the Christians. All scripture is spoken by God. The scripture is God's word. And so that means you can't come to it like a buffet and say, I like the shrimp, but I don't like the pickled herring. You can't say, well, you know, I like what it says about God's grace, and so I'll take that. Um, I'm not so hot on some of what it says about his wrath, you know. I, I like the idea of heaven, not so hot on the idea of hell. So, you know, God inspired heaven, and, you know, the scripture writers, they talked about hell, and they didn't know what they were talking about. And, and so I'll pick and choose and take the things I like and, and leave behind the things I don't like. And that's exactly what we cannot do as we're approaching the scriptures. And so um, we have in um, 2 Peter 1.21, helping to clarify that process for us. And so if you want to keep your finger in Acts 9.1, but turn over to uh, 2 Peter 1.21, talking about how we receive the scripture, uh, speaking of the prophecies that compose the scripture. For prophecy never came by the will of man, 
but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. As they were moved by the Holy Spirit is as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so, um, you know, Christy and I are really pleased. We have a grandson now, and, and so we will carry Henry along. And as we carry Henry along, Henry goes where we take him uh, because we're carrying him along. The writers of Scripture were carried along by God. They were brought to where he wanted them to go. And so men spoke, but men spoke from God. They gave us God's word. And so, as we come to the scriptures then, we are receiving not the word of man, we're receiving the word of God. It says all scripture in 2 Timothy 3.16 is breathed out by God. It's not, uh, you know, God breathes out the parts that we like and not the parts we don't like. Um, Now, one implication of that um, is, you know, you have to receive everything the scripture says. Another implication of that is you really need to become familiar with all the scriptures because all of them are breathed out by God. They're all profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction of righteousness, in righteousness. And so um, I would encourage you to read the whole Bible. Some of us, you know, we have our favorite parts, and so it's like, hey, I like the Psalms, I'll read those. I like the Gospel of John, I'll read that. Okay, none of us really enjoy the genealogies that much. Um, in our uh, Interactive Bible Fellowship on Sunday night, we recently completed the book of Judges. The book of Judges is my least favorite passage in the entire Bible. Every time I get done with Judges, I'm depressed. I'm so happy Ruth comes right after Judges because then I get a little something to pick me up after I'm so depressed after reading the book of Judges. And, uh, but it's all God's word. It's all breathed out by him. We need to read it all. We need to gain what this particular passage of Scripture is telling us. And so I'd encourage you, have a pattern of regular Bible reading where, um, you know, a good way is every year I'm gonna read through the Bible. And so maybe I'm gonna uh, read three chapters out of the Old Testament every day starting in Genesis, and I'll read two chapters or one chapter out of the New Testament every day. And if I do that on a consistent basis, I will make my way through the entire Bible every year. And the first time through, you know, the genealogies, it's like, what on earth is this here for? I'm having trouble staying awake. And, and uh, the second time through, you might get a little bit more, and the third time through, you get a little bit more. As you continue to study, the scriptures in their entirety begin to speak to you. And so, Um, Enough for zooming in on breathing out. Let's uh, zoom out then. Why is this particular passage included in the book of Acts? And so keeping your finger in Acts 9-1, let's go back to Acts 1-8 because Acts 1-8 is really the theme and the outline of the book of Acts. Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so as the book of Acts unfolds, we see God sovereignly working to bring about what Jesus Christ has said in Acts 1.8. And so 
In chapter two, we see the fulfillment of his promise to send the Holy Spirit. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and that happens in Acts chapter two. And then in Acts chapter three through five, we see the fulfillment, and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem. And so we see the Christians witnessing for Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. But they get comfortable in Jerusalem and they forget about Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And so God, who will not allow his plan to be frustrated, works in chapter six and seven, and he allows persecution to come against the church in Jerusalem. And as a result of the persecution, the church is driven out of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and begin bearing witness for him there. And people begin to come to faith in Jesus Christ in uh, Judea and Samaria. And then we come to chapter nine. And in this chapter, the greatest persecutor of the church tries to interfere with God's plan. And so the church is spreading out. They're going from Jerusalem and they're coming to Judea and they're coming to Samaria and they've actually extended as far as Damascus. And so Saul says, I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna get letters. I'm gonna go to Damascus. I'm gonna stop the spread of Christianity there. They're not gonna get past Damascus. I'm gonna push them back to Jerusalem and I'm going to exterminate them there. And so Paul heads out to Damascus so that he can arrest the Christians there. But God had other plans and instead of Saul arresting Christians in Damascus, God arrests Paul on the road to Damascus. He takes him into protective custody. He brings him into the family of God. He comes to faith in Jesus Christ and the persecutor becomes one of the greatest witnesses for Jesus Christ who has ever existed. And so God's plan for his people to be witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth is partly fulfilled through Saul, the great persecutor of the church who is trying to stamp it out. And today God continues to unfold his plan to reach the uttermost part of the earth with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's still his plan for us to be witnesses for him. And so just as it would not do for the early church to get comfortable in Jerusalem and remain there, it will not do for us to be comfortable within the walls of this building and remain here and for our witness to not go out from here. God has called us to be witnesses for him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And it's his plan for us not only to know him, but to make him known. And I'm not just speaking to you about this, but I'm speaking to myself. Because I've reached the point in my life where the vast majority of the people with whom I have long-term relationships are followers of Jesus Christ. And uh, that's extremely comfortable. And if I'm not careful, it's extremely easy for me to just enjoy all of you and not to have a burden for everyone else and not to have a burden that they also should come to know Jesus Christ.
And so I'm praying and seeking opportunities to be a witness for Jesus Christ outside of these walls. And I'm praying that you might pray with me that God might grant us opportunities to be witnesses for him in Zealand and Ottawa County in Michigan in the United States and North America and the Western Hemisphere and around the world. And I hope you'll pray with me about that, that he might grant us boldness to speak when we have the opportunity, that he might grant us the right words to say, that we might speak with wisdom, with meekness, and with power, that we might be witnesses for him. We must also remember that as God changed the heart of Saul to change him from a persecutor to a powerful witness for him, that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. Sometimes we'll look around us and we'll see someone and we'll say, well, that person is never gonna come to faith in Jesus Christ. Their heart is so hard, it is impossible for God to reach them. And yet Saul tells us that this is not the case, that God can penetrate even the hardest heart with the good news about Jesus Christ. And so our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ in North Korea, for example, are a model for us in this. It'd be very easy in their shoes to be praying for the death of their supreme leader. Lord, take him out of the way. Let's have regime change. Bring in someone who's more favorable to Christianity. But that's not how our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ are praying. Our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ in North Korea are praying that the supreme leader of North Korea will come to faith in Jesus Christ. And he is not beyond the reach of God's grace. And so, as we see people around us whose hearts are hard, let us join in prayer that God may reach to them, that they may meet him on their own Damascus road, that they may be drawn to faith in him. Among the former followers of ISIS, there's a surprising number who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, even the New York Times has written articles about some followers of ISIS who have come to faith in Jesus Christ and about them leading Bible studies. The New York Times writing about things like this. And I'd like us to hear about one of those people now. I have a uh, short video I'd like you to see with one of their stories. story. Peter is our new follow-up coordinator. He said he got a call, got a phone call on his cell phone, which we broadcast on our channel, and it was from a man, we'll call him Muhammad. And Muhammad said, I need to meet with you. Now, normally our guys would say, not a good idea. Let's talk first on the phone. But he felt the Lord was saying, go meet this guy. He turned out to be what is called a prince of ISIS, someone that other ISIS members swear allegiance to that they will die for. Uh, hey guys, 
The prince was a religious person in ISIS, and they considered him like a leader who teaches the Quran. He taught people how to memorize the Quran and urged them to jihad. I grew up under radicalism. I was raised to take back Islam to the era of Muhammad, the era of power and conquests. We began to form groups to defend the country and Islam. One day, somebody asked me why I am a Muslim. I had no answer. I began to search in the Quran, Hadith and Sunnah. I wanted to find proof and evidence that Allah exists and Islam is right. I found nothing. The prince heard that I evangelized to Muslims. He got my number and called saying that he wanted to meet and talk. I had a strange feeling that he was from ISIS and that he might try to kill me. But I had a peace inside that the Lord would protect me as he had a reason behind this encounter. So I set up an appointment knowing that he could try to kill me. When I went to Peter, I was scared, but I wanted to search for the truth. So he went and he met with Muhammad and he said, the Lord spoke to him in that moment. He said, be bold with him. I said to him directly, our God is not yours. When I listened to Peter, I felt his words were arrogant. His words had awakened Muhammad, the radical one. Because of my anger, for a moment, I forgot why I came to Peter. I suddenly had one thought. How should I kill him? He boldly proclaimed the gospel to this man, this bearded man. He started crying while I was telling him these words. What made me cry? I don't know. While he was crying, I put my hand on his shoulder and started to pray. He then got up and left me. I felt he was not stable. They met. They went their separate ways. He called again. The man came back very shaken. I had a dream. Peter came to me and gave me a white envelope dripping with blood. The blood had a good fragrance like musk or perfume. When I saw the blood, I was scared. Peter said to me, don't be afraid. Then I woke up. Later, Peter told me, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The prince asked, what should I do to ask forgiveness? I said, the Lord gave it to you for free. You just need to accept it. And gradually, I began to disciple him. So they came together and Muhammad said, Peter, I have a confession. I have to tell you that the first time I was going to meet with you, I intended to kill you. And I'm sorry. And he fell on his face and he repented. I began to visit Peter regularly, and I saw love that didn't exist in Islam. He started walking with the Lord right away. He shaved his beard, he changed his whole life. Then he asked to be baptized. Once I got out of the water, I felt a victory and a joy I could not describe. He is conducting a Bible study for three Syrian people in his area. The true book, in my opinion, is the Bible. I found the truth in Jesus Christ. And because I have surrendered my life to the Lord, I am certain He will never forsake me. God's power is not restricted to the first century. He's still working today to intervene in the hearts of people and draw them to himself. 
The blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to wash away the sins of Saul, to wash away the sins of Muhammad, sufficient to wash away your sins, sufficient to wash away my sins. The Lord's Supper is a picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us. I'd like to invite those who are gonna help serve this morning to begin making their way forward. The Lord's Supper is a picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us. The bread is a picture of his body that was broken for us on the cross. The cup is a picture of his blood that was shed for us on the cross in order that our sins might be forgiven and that we might be reconciled to God. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, I invite you to participate with us in this celebration, this remembrance of what Jesus Christ has done for us, his sacrifice on our behalf that reconciles us to God. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I ask you not to partake of the Lord's Supper today. I don't want you to think that somehow a piece of bread and the cup can save you. The bread and the cup cannot save you. Jesus Christ, who the bread and cup pictures, he's the one that can save you. And so don't look to this particular observance as a means of salvation to you. Look to Jesus Christ instead. And so I want to urge you, if you do not yet have faith in Jesus Christ, to put your faith in him today and become a follower of him. It's possible that you are here with friends or family members who are followers of Jesus Christ, and if you are not sure what you need to do in order to place your faith in Jesus Christ, you can ask them, and they can open the Bible and show you how you can come to faith in Jesus Christ. If you're here as a guest, don't have friends and family members here that you can ask. Find someone with a lanyard and say, hey, I want to know more about how I can become a follower of Jesus Christ, how I can belong to God through faith in him. And so as we prepare to partake, those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, we can turn our attention to the scriptures. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 26, It says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes.